and then jump in. Dear Heavenly Father, we enter your courts with thanksgiving and your presence with praise. Father, we thank you that we have access into your presence through the blood and the work of Jesus Christ and that every prayer uh, that we offer is heard and answered with yes, no, and not yet. And so God, we come asking for you not only to respond to our prayers with the right thing, but we come trusting that you'll respond to them at the right timing. And so, Father, we thank you that you're wise beyond us to know not only the right thing to do, but the right time to do it. Father, would you um, shed a little of that wisdom with us here today? That for some of us that have to make decisions or that are going through particular challenges or battles, um, that you would make us patient, make us wise, make us ready to act. Father, if there's a sin to repent of, God, would you make today a day of salvation? God, would you come and be the pastor and the teacher? Would your presence fill this place? God, would your presence go with us as we walk through your word so that we don't miss any of it, God? We're hard-headed, we're deaf, we're blind, we're slow to learn, God. But would you overcome all that by being such a good teacher that we can't miss it today? Thank you for this opportunity to gather and um, to get into your word, do something beyond us, be the center and the focus, Lord Jesus. We pray that in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. amen. Welcome to church. Y'all braved the Seattle weather uh, to be here. So proud of you. Um, family, it's good to be together. Uh, we've been walking through the book of Ecclesiastes. If you've got a Bible, and I hope you do, crack that thing open, find Ecclesiastes, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Uh, we're already to chapter 3, um, but before we do, maybe a couple statements. Last week, we talked about the difficulty of the secular life. Our boy Solomon has been uh, prodding and poking and pushing on the idea of your life as something purely secular. That is, that God doesn't matter in your life. And if you live as if there is no God and there is no eternity, there's nothing except which is under the sun. It is all a vapor and going to leave you unbelievably depressed and it's going to create some problems for you. And so what Solomon is doing for you is he is dashing all your false hopes upon the rock of God's word so that you might find real hope and real joy in God. Now if you want to feel good for a season, you can go smoke meth and feel high for a season. But what the Bible is fighting for is not a high that's here today and ends up in rehab tomorrow. He's fighting for an eternal joy in you that even death cannot dim. But last week we talked about one of his problems is that death has this, this way of making the secular life meaningless. Just meaningless. Like it's just a collection of Mondays. And, and so this adage, kind of the way he approaches is similar to what you grew up. Go to school, get good grades, right? Pass the ACT, the SAT, the GED, right? Get a great job, make tons of money. And he says the problem with that is make yourself as educated as possible. Get all the gold stars. And at the end of the day, it bothered him that as wise as he is, him and a dummy are going into the same coffin. Like that, That's a problem for him. He can be as wise as he wants to, but he's not fixing the problem of death. So it's kind of like in chess, the king and the pawn go in the same box at the end of life. And it, it just bothered him. He worked himself to death to become wise, and yet the idiot goes and gets... The other problem that death presents to him is he, he toils, puts in the elbow grease, sleepless nights, works overtime, puts in all of this time to accumulate this business, to accumulate all of this wisdom, and he, he builds an empire. And then when he dies, he doesn't get to choose who it passes to or how they manage it. So it's like this, it's like you apply yourself 
to be as great at your craft and as skillful and as clever as you possibly can. And then you pass an inheritance to your kids and you don't know if they're going to be idiots. And it just frustrated him. And we talked about the statistics that in one generation, most wealthy people in one generation, their wealth is lost on their kids. By their grandkids, it's 90%. Why? Because many times what wisdom it took to accumulate and steward it and manage it, we don't disciple our kids to know the same things that we know. And so they squander. There's only one recorded descendant of Solomon, uh, even though he had a thousand women up in his life, and it's Rehoboam. And Rehoboam does exactly the kind of stupidity that Solomon is predicting here. And that's just hard. So we said this, it kind of as a summary of last time, it's, it's the best two weeks of your employment at any location is the last two weeks. When you give that two weeks notice, it's gold, baby. They ask you to do something hard, it's like, you know I'm not going to be here in three weeks, right? You really want to trust it to somebody like me who doesn't care how it turns out? Or the last day of school, students, you are definitely not taking tests or writing papers. That last day of school is beautiful when they cart in the TV. Do they even do that anymore? Right? They cart that baby in. And you just know. It's not a work day. Why? Why would we work on the last day if we know what comes after is nothing? And this is the frustration that God uses to say, if you're purely secular, death causes your life to be meaningless. But if what comes after is eternal and God meets us there then there is nothing that we do is meaningless. Everything matters. And so, um, to kind of put that in perspective and to hedge into kind of how we interact with time and eternity, uh, I'll give you the story and then we'll kind of launch into the text. Um, There was this girl who was getting ready to go on a date with her uh, boyfriend. Heard this story and I think it just applies, okay? And of course, it took her 14 hours to get ready to go on said date, right? Gets ready, dolls up, um, boyfriend is running late, and so she starts coming. He is always late. He doesn't even care about my time, right? Not granted, it took her 14 hours to get there, all right? Goes into the date, gets in the car with the boyfriend and says, what are we doing tonight? He's like, oh, whatever you want to do. If you've ever been there before, you know exactly where this is going. She says in her head, he doesn't even care about me enough to plan out a date night, Right? He's like, well, why don't we go to the Panera Bread, which used to be called St. Louis Bread Company, by the way. Goes to Panera Bread, and he's like, his dad owns Panera Bread. It's like, really? We're going to go bagels? Bagels and soup, which actually sounds really good right now. Goes there, and she begrudgingly eats her broccoli and cheese soup, right, and her bread, right? After it's over, it's like, well, what do you want to do? It's like, well, why don't we go to the beach, Right? Goes down, and she says in her head, if I would have known that we were going to the beach, tell me, ladies, I would not have wore these shoes. Right? Does he not even think to let me know? Okay? So, so that's one story. How she didn't have any idea what was happening that evening, but at every juncture, complaining, negative, unhappy. Now, let's retell the story. Before that date takes place, Her best friend comes to her and adds this little piece of information. I don't know if you know this, but I saw your boyfriend at the jewelry store. He was buying a ring, and I think he's going to propose. She joyfully gets ready for this date, right? I can't wait. Her heart races. His car pulls up, and she is sweating from her palms, right? Gets... He's like, doesn't even matter that he's late. He probably was shining the ring, took extra time to get to my house. Right? Gets in the car, what do you want to do? Whatever you want to do, it doesn't matter. It doesn't even matter. She's so happy he's there. What about Panera Bread? I love Panera Bread. It's my favorite. Right? Your dad works there. I bet your whole family's going to be there. There's going to be a reception for the proposal. They're going to jump out of, you know, behind the scenes at the proposal. Bagels look like wedding rings. Goes into the Panera Bread. I mean, just drinks the soup. Just laps it down. It's over. No propo- She's going through the soup thinking there's a ring in it. Right? Laps the soup up. Goes, where do you want to go to next? 
How about the beach? He's, the sunset's going to be amazing, and he's going to propose on the beach. Right? Just joy after joy after joy after joy after joy. See, what comes after reinterprets the journey. Doesn't it? What comes after changes the journey. And this is what we're getting into here. Because the opposite is from last week. The opposite is because nothing comes after if you're purely secular. Then what happens along the journey is we get more and more dissatisfied and complain and depressed. And it makes sense, right? Because, say for instance, you have a kid who builds a sandcastle, spends hours at the beach building a sandcastle, and then all of a sudden you guys have to go, you start packing up your stuff to leave, and another kid sits down at their sandcastle and begins to change it. What do you think your kid's going to do? It's going to be like the NBA and hold me back, brother. I'm going to beat that kid. Right? You're messing with my sandcastle. Let me give you an older person illustration. You spend 20 years restoring a 1969 Thunderbird. I love Thunderbirds. And I mean, you go and search eBay all over to get the perfect parts to rebuild this classic car exactly the way that it was. I mean, it is just perfect, original, all vintage. You die, somebody from the hood buys it, puts spinners on it, and listens to hip-hop in it. Doesn't that just, mm. You spend your whole life building a business and a company only at the end of your life for a corporation to buy it up and sell it for parts. And they change the name. Your family name ain't even on it no more. Or, come on parents, you spend your whole life, I mean, just spending money to raise your kids and to disciple them and love them. And they don't appreciate it. And, but you just pour your life into your kids. But you send them off to college and somebody else indoctrinates them to believe stuff that causes them to hate you and the life you raised them in. Come on now. Havel. Vanity. Meaningless. And so, here's the thing. Where we're going at the end is going to change how we see things in the present, in the season that we're in. This ended chapter 2 and verse 24. Look at that verse first. There is nothing better for a person that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment. Now that's been tough, right? Because hasn't he been saying that food's not going to satisfy us? Hasn't he said work's not going to satisfy us? That whatever we kind of put in place of God's not going to satisfy us? But he's saying... But those temporary transient things have their place and they're good. This I also saw is from the hand of God. That's the key. That without the grace of God, you ain't going to work with joy. Without the grace of God, you're not eating food in a worshipful, reverent, holy way. It's from God. Look at the next verse, 25. For apart from Him, apart from His presence, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Now this isn't to mean it ain't going to give you a, a quick fix or high. Trust me, carbohydrates do that for me. Alright? But there's just a depth and a satisfaction you're not going to find apart from the presence of God. And we talked about this, about there's, there's going skiing and there's going skiing with your kids, and, and well, I wouldn't say the kids make it more enjoyable, with your friends, all right? But there's things about doing things with your spouse that just ramp up the enjoyment. That when we're with our people, it, it, it takes it up a notch, right? So, what he's saying here is, look at this verse 24, there is nothing better. I, I didn't talk about this last week, but this is powerful. Look at this text. The word better here is inserted in Hebrew. Um, this word's not in Hebrew, it's inserted in English, sorry. The literal meaning of this verse is, there is not a good in man that he should eat and drink and enjoy. That's basically the literal rendition of that. That's very different, isn't it? What that's saying is, is there's nothing in you, in and of yourself, innate in man... That would cause you to be able to enjoy under the sun 
food and drink and work. And then it goes, this is from the hand of God. Something outside of you, grace from God, must enter into man to make him capable of enjoying the good things God's created. So I said it this way um, last week. The things God creates and the capability to enjoy the things God creates are two different things. The way that a can of peaches is one thing and the can opener is another thing. One is the good thing. The other enables you to access them for joy. Does that make sense? And the Bible is basically saying inside of you, you're not going to be able to dig up the capabilities to enjoy all this stuff. And so it points you, the frustration points you to go to God for what God alone can do. To go to his presence. Because in his presence is joy forevermore. This is why, church, the joy of the Lord is our strength. When we talk about hell, we talk about it as a place separated from his presence, separated from his grace. So now, he's argued here, but with God, there's an enjoyment and a depth that you can't find any other way. Now, he's going to transition to chapter 3 about not only is there things to enjoy, but there's a time to enjoy them. So look with me in chapter 3. I'm going to read through this, kind of give you a summary, and then we'll break it back down. Chapter 3. For everything, there is a season. For a time, for every matter under heaven. By the way, read this next part with the song from the birds in your head. You are old. All right? And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, enjoy your youth. This too will pass away. The birds. A time to be born and a time to die. By the way, most of these things are things done to you. You didn't choose them. This is appointed for you. A time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. Isn't this true? Listen to this. I mean, for my family, for our church, I mean, we're in a season of healing. A time to break down. And a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. Just pause here for a second. You show up at a funeral and start laughing? That's inappropriate. Like 90% of what we're trying to do as parents is teach our kids proper timing. What do you do in the right season at the right time? A time to mourn and a time to dance. Push pause. Ed, this said it's time for you to dance. Right? Some of the Baptists in here just squirmed. Keep squirming. That's the dance we're looking for out of you. Right? A time to dance. It's time to cut a rug. Like there's a place for it. A time to cast away stones. A time to gather stones together. Some think this has to do with funerals where they would cast dirt on there. A time to embrace. A time to refrain from embracing. So here's the thing. Whoever is one day going to try to date my daughters... I don't care if they're even engaged. In my presence, it's a time to refrain from embracing. (laughs) A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Anybody had a fight in your marriage because you got that one backwards? Right? Like it was just a good time for you to shut your mouth. And you just kept rattling on. Right? The fish would never get caught if it never opened its mouth. A time to love and a time to hate. Some of us have a problem with that. But the scriptures say that David talked about, I hate those that defy your law. I, like, even in this concept, if we backed it up philosophically, I think most of us in here would say we hate rape, murder, and genocide. Right? Until you hate sin, you'll never repent of it. A time for war and a time for peace. My purely pacifist friends that I have, they have a trouble with this verse. Because they would say there's never a time for war. But there's a time for a police officer to pull their gun and have to stop somebody that is raping, murdering, and committing genocide. Right? 
There's a time for a soldier to do that. And they're not sinning by defending. There's just a time for that. And there's a time for war, and there's a time for peace. If you watch the news, we may be switching which one of these we're in right now. Verse 9, what gain, so this is it, whatever season it's in, whatever time you're in, whichever of these you're at, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. This is a repetition of something that we've had before. Again, we've talked about the whole book kind of lays out the same way that time does. It's not circular, and it's not even purely linear. It's more like a slinky. He's going to revisit themes over and over again as he progresses forward. He has made everything. Listen to this. 11. He's made everything beautiful in its time. That's a beauty that a lot of us do not behold. That's a beauty a lot of us don't appreciate. If I took you to many you know, like museums, and we looked at, at the Louvre, at some ancient art, a lot of us have no idea what we're looking at or why it's beautiful. Right? So there's a beauty in it, but you are, you are not capable of seeing it. And we would say, most of us, some of the ugliest moments in our lives have been when we've done stuff with very poor timing. Right? Also, he's put eternity into man's heart so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. Do you know how powerful that verse is right there? Like eternity is in your heart. That means you're sitting here today in your heart believing you're going to live forever. Like you woke up today believing you're going to live forever. Now, in your back of your mind, you'd be like, yeah, I'm going to die. But not today, son. Right? Like nobody thought you were driving here in the rain with all these Californians and Texans that moved in. You didn't think you were going to die. All the evidence of the graveyard you passed on the way here says the opposite. Now you believe it. You believe you're going to die. You're just not dying today. Why? you got eternity in your heart. Man was created by God to live forever. You will live forever either in his presence in heaven or separated from him in hell. This is, we are eternal beings. We long for eternity. This is why C.S. Lewis has this unbelievable quote. He talks about that if I have desires for things which nothing here on earth can satisfy, then it means that I was created for another place, for something more. So what he does is he looks at food and sex and work and all these things, and none of them satisfy him in his soul. And he says that pointed him as an atheist to the fact that he was created for something other. Because he's got eternity bound up in our hearts. Your neighbor's got eternity bound up. And they may play games about when we die, it's all over and that's all there is. But they don't live that way. They live straight hypocritical to that reality. Living as if everything they do matters and means something and is going somewhere. We've got eternity bound up. But here's the frustrating act of God in your life. You ain't going to find out what God's done from beginning to end. Your little small piece of the puzzle will not allow you to see what God is doing from the beginning of time to the end of time. You ain't got that kind of capability as a simply secular person. The Word of God alone gives us insight in what God is doing because it's from God. It's not from you. I perceive that there's nothing better, here comes back to that better word, for them than to, do, to be joyful. There's nothing better than that, than joy, and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all of his toil. This is God's, everywhere you see in the Bible, gift. Just remind yourself, this is grace. It's not earned, it's a gift. Just like we talk about in Romans 6, 23. It's the gift of God. Right? This is the gift. So here's the thing. He says pleasure and joy. Let me ask you this. When you go to work, do most people walk around as though they're really pleased? No? Like they just don't wake up on Monday... 
with no, you know, like the coffee, no coffee that day, and they're just, I'm just pleased to be here today. But the Bible's saying there's nothing better than that, just to walk around pleased with the good things God's given. How about this? How, how many people at your workplace or the people you're going to associate with this week, you would describe every single breath they're taking as joyful? Huh? Nothing better. They're going to work. They're eating. They're drinking. They're doing all kinds of stuff. But are they joyful? Church, this is why. Because without God, you ain't got the kind of joy the Bible's talking about. It's a gift from Him and Him alone. This is why, if you're a Christian, there is very few things as inviting to people to the gospel as your joy. Your joy in all circumstances, good, bad, the ugly, your joy preaches. Come on, family. Your joy preaches. That's why the joy of the Lord is our strength. Because His presence with us in hell and high water makes us act differently than the world does in hell and high water. You track him. So it's God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. That is, the only substantial things that are going to last are the things that God does. Therefore, you ought to get on board with what he's doing in history, y'all. Now, God has done it so that people, this is so key, verse 14, that people should fear before him. We use the word fear a little bit differently here. This has a concept of reverence. It has a concept of trembling in worship, respect. It's like standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon going, whoa, like that. It's this, it's this kind of back you up reverence kind of word that people should fear. The fact that God manages time and not you should cause you to respect him. God has done it, they may fear him. Verse 15, that which is already has been and that which will be has already been. And God seeks what has been driven away. That is, he is taking things from the past and tying them to the present and to the future. He is, um, sometimes has a weaver spinning all these things together. That when you look at the underside of a tapestry or something that's being made, it looks chaotic and crazy and like Fox and CNN, alright? But when you flip it to the other side, you see that he has woven things together and made them beautiful. And so he's taking things and binding them all together. So this gets into a, an issue. All of this passage in the first eight verses is talking about these patterns and rhythms. Then verse 14 is going to summarize the point of how God manages times and seasons and things is so that it would bring you to a point of worship. I would argue that for most of us, the fact that we don't get to dictate What's happening to us, whether it's a time of planting or plucking up, living or dying and all these things. The fact that we don't get to control that makes us bitter. Makes us frustrated because we're not God. But he's saying in verse 14, it's meant to bring us into a worshipful posture. Okay, so it brings us to this concept of time. Calvin talked about God having two hands when it comes to time. He has an active hand where he actively brings things about, and he has a passive hand when it comes to time, passively allowing other things to happen. Either way, for the believer, everything that happens passes through his hands. This should cause the believer great confidence and assurance that whether good times or hard times are coming at you, they pass through God's hands before they pass before your face. This is why we can know, Romans 8, 28, we know all things work together for the good of those that love God and are called according to His purpose. This is not true of unbelievers. But if you're a believer and you love God and are called according to His purposes, all things work together for the good. This is similar to Ephesians 2.10. That um, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
like God volleyball sets you up to succeed. Um, here's, here's part of what's going on. In Greek, there's two words that actually affect how we think about time, too, in English. One is chronos. Chronos is like minutes, hours, days, weeks. It's like the calendar. It's like time. We just measure time on a wristwatch or something. The second word is kairos. And when they translated this Hebrew text into Greek, they used this other Greek word for time, which has to do with seasons. It's the fullness of time. It's like the window of opportunity. It's what we talk about with athletes when um, they, a quarterback throws the ball through a window and it's like there's like great timing involved. So we talk about this in history sometimes. We don't talk about history simply as dates, but we talk about it as significant events that built up and kind of encapsulate what was happening at that time or season. And so this other word is that in the life of every person are seasons. Seasons. So you get this as somebody from Colorado, because tell me I'm wrong here. I mourn right now that summer's over. Like, is there, I've never lived in a place where I just pleaded with God for summer to be longer. Right? And it almost gets into this thing. Summer's way over, people. But we're in the fall, and is not Colorado the most beautiful place the fall ever happens? And most of us miss it because we're mad summer's over. You know why? Because winter's a jerk. It is. It's just messing with us. And we're right now being like, I don't want to put on a jacket. Matt Lee is going to wear Chacos until December. Holding on to a little bit more summer. Right? So, what's going on here? It's just, it's hard to be in the season that we're in. To be present in it. Right? We're kind of mourning one is over. We're preparing for the one that's next. And we're missing the fall colors. Do you bring somebody up here from Kansas? They don't even got a tree. And they will love it here. Right? In Proverbs chapter 30, the ant is giving, given to man as a model of what wisdom is. Because the ant knows what season it is and responds accordingly. Isn't that a great definition of wisdom? Knows what season it is and responds accordingly. They get it. Failure to know what season you are in results in wearing flip-flops in the snow. Time in the scripture is a servant of God used to humble us. Used to humble us. Because we can't stop it. And matter of fact, can anybody else just admit that we're terrible with it? Like, you know, like terrible. Um, you, you realize like all of us get the same amount of time in a day? Like we all get 24 hours and yet we're vastly different stewards and managers of that time. And most of us don't see it as the most precious commodity maybe God has given us. Um, you, you don't think it's precious, right? You think that money is more important than time? How about this? I'll give you a billion dollars, but you have to die tonight. Who wants to trade? Nobody? That's weird. So apparently money's not more valuable than time. How about this? I'll give you a billion dollars, but you have to lose your health for the rest of your life. You're just going to be bedridden. Okay, so maybe your health is more important. How about this? I'll give you a billion dollars, but everybody you've ever loved, every loved one is dead. No? Some of you are like, you don't know my loved ones. I might take that one. <laughs> so at the very base, your loved ones, your health, and time is more valuable than money. There's tons of people that are billionaires that would trade their billions for more time. That tells you everything you need to know about what kind of commodity God has graced poor people like you with. It's a blessed commodity, and yet, is there anything that we squander more? I mean, 
get on to your kids for leaving the light switch on and wasting your electric bill or leaving a faucet on and wasting water, but ain't nobody wasted anything the way you've wasted time. Nothing. I love one quote that I heard. We sit around and we kill time as though we're not injuring eternity. The parable of the wicked stewards in the New Testament, one of the things that they say that I thought was really fascinating is that they were, God gives them all this stuff, the master, the Lord, they're to be managers of it. But time passes, and they said to themselves, our master is delayed. They acted as though God's not coming back, the Lord's not going to come hold them accountable. And as he delays, it gives them occasion. They see they have time to sin. Every sin that you've ever done presupposes you have time to get away with it. I, I love this definition of procrastination. Procrastination is the arrogant assumption that God owes you another chance to do tomorrow what he gave you a chance to do today. The Puritans said it like this. We spend our whole lives killing time, and in the end, it kills us. We are just, like, it's, time is this instrument of God to humble us, and, and we're just really bad with it. Until it does us really bad. Um, I, heard, I heard this funny story. It, um, this doctor comes to a patient and says, I got bad news and I got worse news. And he says, okay, well, hit me with the bad. And he says, the bad news is you have 24 hours to live. He's like, oh, my God. He's like, what could be worse news than that? I meant to call you yesterday. Right? I, I will never forget the story my grandpa told me about that he went to the doctor in his 70s. And the doctor's like, you are going to live longer than my career. I'm retiring before you die. He got this clean bill of health. And he's like, you are healthy as a 30-year-old male. You're, you're going to live on. And my grandpa told me that on his way home, he bought new pants. Because he had been spacing out his pants to the end of his life. And he had determined that he's going to live longer than the current pairs of pants that he had. So he, he had to make a business decision to go ahead and spend that money. There, there's a thing here. We, we all believe that there's medical science can add years to our life, as though death isn't appointed. But really, the truth of the matter is, and the real problem is, how do we add life to our years? Isn't that the problem with the text? What's the gain of the toil? How do we enjoy it? And I would argue this. Jesus alone adds life to whatever years you got left. Some of you may not make it out of 2023. I'm doing a funeral this next week of someone that just sat under my teaching since I've been here. Some of you may not make it out of this year. But you know what's going to add the most amount of life to whatever space you got left? Jesus, y'all. Jesus comes and says, I come, in John 10, 10, that you may have life and life abundantly. God is not a killjoy. He's the source of joy. God is not trying to extinguish your life. He's trying to take life to the next level and turn it up a notch. What the problem is, is you are constantly believing the lie that your sin is going to do for you what God and God alone does. All of us are confronted with this when we look at our problems with time. It's His time and not ours. We don't have enough time. We have time constraints. Trace Atkins said, time marches on. And so we are constantly trying to fight time by dyeing our hair and making the crow's feet a little less. We're fighting time all the time. And here's the deal. We miss the season we're in and drinking it up. That's what he's talking about here. Nothing better. Eat, drink. You can't enjoy it because you're constantly fighting it. But here's the thing, if you know God is sovereign over it, it allows you to, to quit waging war against God's servant and instead to enjoy the havel, the temporary things. So look, look at this. Let's talk about two kind of dynamics here. Church, there is a time to just party. 
I mean, throw down, celebrate and feast, buy too much food. The ice chest, absolutely full. Barbecue at the Rodericks. Got to go next level. You hear me? Let me push pause here. Some of you, in what I just said, it bothers you. Because you're a crusty old Baptist. All right? And the height of parting to you is a potluck. But there's a place for it. There's a place for dancing and attending a wedding and just, let's go. Unbelievable. Deepest, good friends, good drinks. Just, do you know what I'm saying? Staying up way too late. Playing cards or whatever you people do. Some people in here, in their heart, they're like, this is the sermon I've been waiting for my whole life. And others are like, you need to say not too much. Tell me I'm wrong right now in your mind. On the other side, there's a time to refrain. There's a time to fast. There's a time to take a break. There's time to step back. There's a time for, for food and drink and things to be available, but it's not the right season for you. You need, to, you need to fast. And some of you in here is like, I've been waiting for you to tell those people they need to stop a long time. And the party people are like, are you for real? Like, I can't just constantly go from one holiday to the next? Like, being a glutton and a drunkard at every occasion? What is today's occasion? It ends in, today ends in why, all right? Do you see that these both have a place in your rhythm? And that inside the church, we feel like we maybe might not be free enough to party or that we might not be disciplined and holy enough to refrain, to take a Sabbath, to take a break. Parents, listen to me. Your kids should learn to feast and party and celebrate with good friends and great food and no shot clock, just open out. They should learn to party from you. Far be it from your kids to learn how to party their freshman year of college. I promise you, if you'll teach them how to biblically feast and celebrate things, they'll go to a freshman party and it'll seem lame. Promise you. At the same time, they should learn moderation from you, discipline from you, when to say no, and when to refrain from you as well. They should see their parents be the most balanced people out there. Families, listen to me. Your dinner table should be an altar which you guys gather around to worship God. You should not eat every meal in the car in between sporting events. That's bad Christianity to me. I'm not saying you can't grab Taco Bell in the way every once in a while. I'm just saying if that's where most of your dinners are, that's lame sauce. That's lame. There's a place to slow down in whatever season your life is and to drink it in. You can't Always be mourning the past season over and preparing for the next season, but you must trust grace to enjoy whatever season you are in. If it's a healing season, if it's a gathering season, if it's a building season, whatever it is, drink it in because it's almost over. I, I think all of us that are parents 100% get this. I remember holding my oldest in one hand and I blinked, and now he can do math. Isn't that weird? And isn't it hard for us as parents to not remember them as some punk toddler that would steal stuff and run naked without a towel around them after the bath? Like it's hard to see them that way. Well, if they turn teenagers, they do that again. But right, like, we blinked. Like, we had them as kids. And moms, have you ever found yourself, please don't grow up, trying to hold on to it, or, dads, morning, how much do diapers cost? You thought the diaper phase was forever and little fish made from gold? 
And you thought that would always be your car. And then all of a sudden they learned to read. And then you had to teach them certain things that you see. Don't read that. Right? They learned to drive. And then they learned to drive you crazy. And then you couldn't get them out of the house fast enough. And then when they moved out, you missed them. Tell me that 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 transition of seasons has been just super easy for you. You had no problems with it. I'd love to meet you. I spend times, I did 10 years of college ministry. I met college students all the time, and I met their parents, and I had to, I'd set both of them down and look at each other and say, I don't know if you know this, but this is going to be hard on both of you. Because sometimes the college student just wanted to go off, and it's like, I don't know why my mom's tripping. I'm like, you are such an idiot. You don't know why your mom's tripping? She loves you and raised you. And then I turn to the mom. It's like, you don't understand why this dude's trying to be his own man and move out? And there's tension, and you got to coach both of them. Because it's hard on... It's hard to move from one chapter to the next, isn't it? And we try to hold on. We try to mourn it. We try to prepare for the next one. But we sometimes miss the one that we're in. And it says here, the thing that we miss out is that God has made it beautiful in its timing. And I, listen, I'm the worst at this. Because for me, I'm snapping 12,000 photos of my kids. It's not about quality photos, it's about quantity. I'm just snapping photos because I want to remember what they were like when they were th- like this, right? I love the, the uh, comedian Jim Gaffigan. I have more pictures of my kids than my dad ever looked at me. We just try to hold on to that moment. I'm not, the world's worse, but here's the thing, church. Listen to this. This is, I, I think this is good counsel for you. Walk with God in whatever season you're in right now. Walk with God. Invest your time in what eternally matters, where moth and rust don't destroy, thieves don't break in and steal, and the government can't tax. I added that last one. Church, whether it is sorrow or it is rejoicing, drink it in. Let it work its magic on your soul. So we say like youth, you're in this education, this growing phase. If you're a young person here and you're still growing, both in your intellectual capabilities, your physical capabilities, you're you're learning. And maybe you're a young adult here or just an adult and you're in a building phase. You're building a family. You're building a business. You're building a career. You're building a skill set. You're in the building phase. Or maybe you're uh, one of our older saints here. And what you have built and what you have learned and what you've grown through, you are now trying to use your last days to pass it to the next generation. And you are building your legacy of, of taking all that you've accumulated and passing it willfully to the next generation. Whatever season of life you're in, Just kill it in that season. Just win. Just glorify God in it. Walk in it. Or even, let me say it like this, do something radical for the Lord in whatever season you're in. I have sat with college students who got to school and they wanted to take 30 hours a semester at college and they they wanted to work 40 hours, and they do stuff. And I would just tell them, while you're here at this university and you're in this building phase, while you're a student, do something radical for Jesus. You'll never regret it. Go to a third world country for two months, study under a missionary, share the gospel, learn a language. And I promise you, if you do something radical for Jesus in your growing phase, it will pay dividends more than working a few extra hours or taking a few extra classes. You've got to break yourself from the hamster wheel of just running to the next expected thing. You're trying, to, you're trying to warp speed out of the season you're in. Instead, this is a growth phase. Grow in the most possible ways. Or I come to young adults or adults in this church. You're building a family. You're building a career. Do something radical for Jesus in that building phase. Don't just take vacation after vacation 
where there's cheap margaritas. Grab your crew up and take them with us to Guatemala. I promise if your family will go down there and surf, it'll have a more lasting impact than any of those margaritas. You're like, you're a pastor. You're supposed to say that. All right, well, substitute it for whatever other thing that everybody else is doing that is not for Jesus. And if you do something radical in your family, change what you do on Christmas instead of just blow more money on the credit card. Do something radical for Christmas. I promise you, it'll pay better dividends. Old folk, do not retire. Ever. I'm not saying don't get out of, don't retire from your job. Don't retire from the kingdom. There are so many young families in this church that need your wisdom, your input, and your service. Don't check out. I have a a mentor, uh, David Anderson, who I owe so much to. Many times as a preacher, a person, a father, a husband, I'm a product of a group of mentors that shaped me long before I got to Colorado. David Anderson is one of them. He came to our college ministry in his 60s. And he would, imagine showing up to a room, everybody's 18 to 22, except for me and David Anderson. He became like Professor Xavier, the grandfather of our college ministry. He spent his time every morning finding new guys on campus to take to coffee, to take to equivalent of Brenda's. He would set young guys down, And just pour into them, pray with them, talk about the word. He treated them like brothers. That man, I promise you, has been in more weddings than anybody I've ever met. I talked to his wife. He's been in at least 50 weddings as a groomsman. 23-year-old guy getting married. They're like, what is that 60-year-old guy doing as the best man? Do you know what he's doing? Legacy. He's he's done something radical with his last years. And it wasn't checking out. It wasn't collecting shells or hobbies. It was, in, it was investing in the men that come next. I, could, I can gather you so many men that would say their lives changed over a breakfast table at a diner in our town. Because that man invested into them. Whatever season you're in... Find something radical to do for Jesus. Wisdom is like the ant doing right things in the right season from the grace of God for the glory of God. God has humbled you with the unsolvable problem of that when it comes to all things in history, you are not going to find them out, figure them out, or comprehend them with your small piece of the puzzle, your small brain, and your bad motives. But here's what you can know, is that God has given you time, and God has given you purpose, and God has given you grace in the meantime to do things that glorify Him. You can drink it up. You can enjoy it. You can maximize whatever your puzzle piece is and be a part of the bigger picture and surrender the rest to Him whose hands are capable to hold them. Or you can die frustrated. Your sin creates problems with time. And God uses that frustration to lead you to Jesus. Who is the beginning and the end. The Alpha and Omega. And the one who holds time in his hand. Have you surrendered to him? Or are you just walking bitter to bitter from season to season? One last story. And uh, we're done. I didn't know his original name before I researched this. But in 1605, um, Nicholas Herman uh, was a Frenchman. He was injured on a battlefield. Back in the day, they used to send teenagers to battle. He went out to battle and was injured in his feet. And that injury left him lame for the rest of his life. And so many days laid up in bed, he complained. Uh, So if you've ever... You know, you had a spouse that had the flu and you're really kind to them first day. Think about second or third day when they start getting really crabby. Laid up. 
he meets Christ for the first time at 18. But he lived in this constant insecurity. And here's the reason why. He thought that his life was insignificant and meaningless. Exactly what Ecclesiastes is talking about. And the reason he thought that is while he's laid up and limited because of his feet and because of his injury, he saw everybody else running off to work and and doing and living, and he's limited. And so he lives under this constant cloud of meaninglessness. And at age 50, um, he he did what many of you do, obviously. He entered a monastery. So he goes into this monastery, and what made the monastery even worse for him is that they made him, uh, they assigned him to the kitchen, which my kids understand this, because if you ask them to do the dishes, that, that is basically purgatory, all right? They assigned him to the kitchen, and he just constantly complained and complained and whined and complained. And in the midst of all this complaining, in the midst of the monastery, in the midst of the kitchen, God met him. God met him and questioned him, and he said, why are you complaining? That's a good question, isn't it? Why are you complaining? Why are you a negative Nancy all the time? Why? Do you not know that whatever you do is for me, And my presence is always with you in the doing of it. Don't you know that whatever you do is for me? And my presence is with you in the doing of it. The reality, church, of the Lord's presence and His ordaining of the situations that He was in, that reality changed Him. It changed Him. It added majesty to the mundane. And so he began to take a journal of all the times that God met him in the mundane, in the the everyday, and in everything. The other brothers, they noticed that, I mean, he had like flipped a switch in this monastery. And that there's this difference in him. That he communed with God at all times. That he had a joy about him. And that he had went from complaining to gratitude. And they they named him, uh, began to call him Brother Lawrence. 400 years later, that journal of him writing down his meetings with God while doing the dishes, moms, wives, That journal of when God met him doing the dishes, most often, is still discipling people today. His book, called Practicing the Presence, is a book 400 years later still in print. Church, the presence of God can add majesty to the mundane. But we only know Him through the gospel. Through Christ who came and entered human history, died for our sins, died for all that toxic complaining we did, who gave Himself that we might have life, died on the cross and rose from the grave, that we might have new life, that we might have access into His presence, that we might know Him. Do you know Him? Have you entered into His presence with thanksgiving. Let me pray for you. Dear Heavenly Father, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, teach us not only the right way to go and the right things to do, but the right timing to do them. Father, if there's any here that don't know you as Lord and Savior, I pray today and right now in this moment, your Holy Spirit would save them, would turn them from sin and selfishness and self-exaltation 
towards your grace, that your joy might woo them and draw them to Christ. That today, of all times, today would be the day of salvation. That today would be the fullness of time for salvation. Father, if there's believers here walking in attitude, walking and complaining, God, that are not pleased with the sins that they hold so dear, God, would you pry bar those sins out of their hands and cause them to surrender them so they might find joy in you that the world will never offer. God, it's a gift. And so give us a heart to receive it all over again. Pray that in the strong name of Jesus. Everyone said, man, we're going to enter into a time.